I title these uh, considerably far in advance, so I don't always think through that obviously I missed the opportunity to just use the word fool one more time in this sermon. I'm going to use it a lot, but obviously I missed it in the title. But if you grew up in a certain time frame that I did, you know exactly what I'm thinking about here. Andrew Carnegie was a poor Scottish immigrant who came to the United States as a teenager in 1848. Through good timing, brilliant business skills, incredibly hard work, more than a little insider trading, and monopolistic business behavior, he ultimately dominated the steel industry in America. When he sold Carnegie Steel in 1901, some 53 years after immigrating to the U.S., he was the third richest person in human history, with a fortune equivalent to $310 billion. Perhaps most striking about this was his passionate commitment to give it all away for the betterment of society. During his lifetime, he gave away 90% of that fortune to fund schools, university, 3,000 public libraries, pensions for employees and educators, and, and many of the institutions he founded over 100 years ago are still going strong today. Upon his death, the remaining fortune was also given away, $310 billion in today's money given away. He explained his view on wealth this way. I have known millionaires starving for lack of the nutriment which alone can sustain all that is human in man. And I know workmen and many so-called poor men who revel in luxuries beyond the power of those millionaires to reach. It is the mind that makes the body rich. There is no class so pitiably wretched as that which possesses money and nothing else. Well, Carnegie's wise understanding of wealth stands in stark contrast to one man that Jesus encountered on his road to Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem for his appointment with the cross. But instead of taking the direct route, which would have taken three or four days of walking, he took an extended road trip all throughout Israel that fills about ten chapters of Luke's gospel. Like any good road trip, he met lots of interesting and unusual characters and, and unusual situations along the way. And for the next two months, we're going to be on the road with Jesus, looking at one of those each week. Today, we observe one man's greed. And what Jesus said to him, we will see, still applies very much in 21st century America. So, Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere 
to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Christ's concluding words here are sobering, that anyone stockpiling treasure for themselves without being rich towards God is condemned as a fool by the Lord. I'm guessing that most of us here do not desire to hear God declare us to be fools. And so if that is true, we need to look and heed the lessons of this encounter. As we dig into this and examine it, three principles stand out. The first of which comes from the two most important verses in this passage. Right, that first principle pointed to by these are simply this. It's about the motivation, not the money. These two key verses, the ones that are absolutely most important, are the ones that come just before and just after Jesus tells the parable. This is a common pattern with parables. Verse 15 says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I've already noticed that the concluding verse, 21, defines the fool as anyone who lays up for himself treasure and is not rich towards God. Both of these statements address attitude. On the one hand, covetousness, or what you might call greed for something you don't have. The other addresses whether we are cheap or generous towards God. Money isn't the issue here. Our attitude about money is what's critical. The encounter begins with a man asking Jesus to get involved in a family inheritance dispute. Inheritance was serious business in Israel because the land and everything in it was correctly understood to be the gift and inheritance from God. As you read the Old Testament, it is clear God cares about making sure the property was preserved and divided properly within a family. So Israel had well-defined, well-enforced inheritance laws. The fact that this man wanted Jesus to get involved in his dispute almost certainly means that he was seeking something beyond what the law specified. And Jesus wisely refused to get involved. He recognizes that the issue was not about justice. It was about this man's greed. He essentially dismisses the entire inheritance issue as being trivial. He's not going to be the arbitrator just to sort out property. But he says it is trivial compared to this man's heart condition. And he strictly warns not only this man, but everyone in the crowd, and thus everyone who reads it thousands of years later, to be on guard against all forms of covetousness. Covetousness, big word, but it violates the Tenth Commandment. So we see that this man's greed had become a spiritual issue. 
He had fallen into sin because of his lust for whatever it was he felt he deserved from his brother. Covetousness occurs when our interest in money or stuff that we don't have becomes more important to us than God, our family, our integrity, or our principles. When that item or money that we're lusting after is is the source of incredibly strong feelings, and there's a certain life cycle of these feelings, it's strong desire when we think about it, it's intense anger when we can't get it, and it's hostility and conflict towards whoever does have it. When that cycle takes root in us, then this has replaced God in our hearts. This is an ever-present threat when it comes to money and stuff. I say that that is particularly true in our culture because our culture is awash in money and stuff. We celebrate money and stuff. We proclaim money and stuff as the solution to all of life's problems, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And so Jesus is saying we must all, each of us, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. Unhealthy desire for money, unhealthy desire for possessions, for promotions, for status, for bigger houses or bigger cars or bigger churches. Yes, churches can covet too. There's nothing wrong with nice things, but when our desire goes too far, then we have a problem, whether it's individually or as a church. The question each of us has to ask ourselves in moments of honesty, which can be few and far between, is what is genuinely our attitude towards money and stuff? Is it a healthy one or not? Now, to underscore his point, to help us understand to some extent the ridiculousness of it, Jesus tells a parable about a man who was already rich. One year, his farm went crazy, producing tremendous amounts of crops and apparently causing him to spend a lot of time talking to himself. He had to ask himself, what am I supposed to do with all this stuff? And his conclusion was essentially to do nothing with it. He doesn't sell it. He doesn't turn it into something useful. He doesn't share it with anyone. Instead, he just spends his time and his money tearing down perfectly good barns to build even bigger ones to store his stuff. And and why does he want to do this? So he can sit around and do nothing for the rest of his life. But unfortunately for this fool, the rest of his life turns out to be really, really short. Right? He's going to die that night. The language there from God is speaking in terms of calling a loan. The loan of his life is being called that night. God calls him a fool. The word here quite literally means unthinking one because he's just not thinking through the situation. He's not thinking through properly his life or his stuff or his relationship with his stuff. I want to be clear, this man wasn't a fool because he was rich. That was a blessing. He wasn't a fool because his land produced a lot of crops. That was a blessing. 
He wasn't even a fool because he was saving and investing because I wouldn't describe what he was doing as truly saving and investing. He was a fool because he spent all his efforts holding on to stuff for no purpose other than to gratify himself when he had no long-term future. Once again, it's about the motivation, not the money. Think about the wording of this parable, right? He never interacts with other people. It is filled with I statements. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store. I will say to my soul. He never once thinks about God, and he never once thinks about his neighbor. Of course, last week, if you were here, we talked about the Great Commandment. He never once thinks about doing anything remotely useful with those crops. He just thinks about holding on to them as tight as he can, and that's impossible because he's about to die. That's the second principle of this passage, that when we die, our stuff isn't going with us. As stated simply, Unless Jesus Christ returns first, every single one of us in this room, from the youngest child to the oldest senior, is going to die someday. When we do, I guarantee you 100% of all the money and stuff we accumulate in our lives will be left behind. None of it is going to travel with us to our final destination. Now, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, our final destination is the eternal presence of God. And when we get there, I think we're going to realize how pitiful and small our possessions were in this life compared to what's waiting for us. I think we're going to realize how foolish some of our efforts to amass more and more money and stuff really were when we have proper hindsight. I think that's what Jesus meant in verse 15, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of its possessions. We're not going to give an inventory of our stuff when we stand before the judge. In light of all that, obsessing about piling up ever higher mountains of stuff and money, like this fool, is foolish. So don't be an idiot. Yes, we should save responsibly. It's sort of necessary in our culture that we consider responsibly contributing to things like 401ks or thrift savings plans because we're in a culture where you cannot rely on others to care for us in our senior years. That's sort of the cultural reality. But again, it's about the motivation, not the money. So the point is don't obsess over it. Don't covet an ever-larger account balance. Don't sacrifice your enjoyment of life or your family or other human beings, your, your spiritual life or the kingdom of God on the altar of an ever-larger account balance. It's about the motivation. We should use what God gives us to plan and to save, but also to enjoy and to bless people and to build God's kingdom. Now, the corollary to the fact that our stuff isn't going with us when we die is that right after this parable, 
Jesus makes clear that we can send some of it ahead of us. Luke 12.33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus is clear that when we use our money to build God's kingdom and to care for those who are created in his image, and that, as we discussed last week, is all our neighbors, that we are storing up treasure in heaven. And I don't necessarily expect that that treasure is going to look like piles of gold coins in heaven. I think that's ridiculous, unnecessary. Rather, I think it is more likely the pleasure and satisfaction of our Lord and Savior. It's an eternity of seeing the full impact of our giving. It's things like that. And this is something that we should desire very much. You see, unlike covetousness, which is an unhealthy desire for things we don't have, this, the desire to build up treasure in heaven by by caring for and building up God's kingdom on earth, is a very healthy desire. It is a good and holy motivation. It is what Jesus is calling us to here. And I believe that we live in a golden age of making a kingdom impact with our money. Something that we have never seen before because I think that inexpensive and rapid international travel and shipping has combined with the instantaneous transfer of funds along with the mobilizing and organizing power of the internet in a way that has never existed before to make it possible for those of us blessed to live in the Western world to make tremendous kingdom impacts around the world with what seems like relatively modest sums of money. If you were here last year, think back to when we joined with other churches in the area to pack five million meals for Feed My Starving Children. How much did each of those meals cost? 22 cents. We live in an age when those modest sums by our standards can very quickly and easily be projected, not just around our community, but across the world to positively impact people's present, immediate situation as well as their eternal life. That's a model I like, by the way, the idea where you get a 100% guaranteed return by making someone's life better now and you open the possibility of eternal impact. I know there are many people here who have sponsored kids or have sponsored kids in years past through ministries like Compassion International, uh, Food for the Hungry, some other groups like that, right? Where, where you have this tremendous kingdom opportunity where you, you get to, to be involved and minister in the life of a child in another country, and where for the cost of about taking a family of four out to dinner once a month, you provide impoverished children with food, and care, and education, and spiritual nurture. I've also shared before about Water of Life, a small Christian group in South Carolina that digs freshwater wells in India and Africa. These wells permanently transform the day-to-day lives of hundreds of people in each village they work. Right, People who are freed from the risk of, of contaminated water, 
who are freed from the burden of spending hours a day just to gather water for that day. Right? With that time, they are able to get education. They are able to invest in working and in bettering their families. There is an immediate impact to their lives. But then these wells often open the door for a village to hear about the love of Jesus Christ. And so from these wells also flows new believers, new churches, and generations of people impacted for eternity. There are lots of groups that do this kind of work very well. Our family got involved with Water of Life at a time where we were examining how much retirement savings was enough and how much was just building bigger barns for a day that may or may not ever come. A well is not cheap, right? There are things you could do. You have options with that money. If, you, if we'd save that money, probably be able to go out to dinner two extra times a year during our retirement years. Or we could use it today, take a, take a vacation or, or upgrade something around the house. But the burden we felt was how could that possibly compare to changing both the present and possibly the eternal life of hundreds of people? As Christians, we must be seeking opportunities like this. We must be training ourselves to think about money from an eternal perspective. How can we best glorify God and build his kingdom and store up eternal treasure? Now, ultimately, what should motivate us to do these things, to think this way, is the third principle of this passage. God is rich towards us. We should be rich toward him. God was very rich towards this fool. Jesus wants us to clearly understand that this man's bumper crop was the result of God's blessing. It was not the result of this man's brilliance and hard work. Yes, I'm sure he worked. Farming is hard work. But look at the way Jesus phrases verse 16. The land a rich man produced plentifully. Now, how does land produce plentifully? Rich soil, the right amount of sunshine, the right amount of rain, no bugs coming and eating the crops, no disease blighting the crops. Healthy growth. These are things the man had no control over whatsoever. These were blessings from God. This is why he had so many crops. Sadly, this blessed fool had no thanks or thought about God in his heart at all. God condemned him for a fool because he imagined that both his life and his wealth were things under his control, rather than realizing that they were each blessings and stewardships from God. The appropriate response for this blessed fool would have been to find a way to return a portion to God, put it to work for his kingdom. Hence Jesus' warning to him, well, to the crowd and to us. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God richly blessed this fool, and he should have been rich toward God. God has also richly blessed us. 
whether or not we think of ourselves as rich, even the poor among us are wealthy in comparison to global and historical standards. Compared to billions of people alive today and billions throughout history, almost every single 21st century American is a one percenter. We may not think of ourselves that way, but we are. So even if we don't have much left over at the end of the month, or even if there are a number of months where we run out of money before we run out of month, there's almost always something we can and should be grateful for materially. And even if it's very tiny, right? And Jesus commends that. That's a sermon for another day, the widow and the two, two coins. Right? There is almost always something we can do to express that gratitude by giving to build up God's kingdom here on earth. Whether it's in the Lake Ridge community or whether it's the other side of the globe. But it's more than just about material stuff. It's more than just material blessing. As believers in Jesus Christ, God isn't just rich towards us materially. He is, with 100% certainty, for every single believer, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, He is extraordinarily rich towards us in grace and mercy. God loves us so much, he sent his son Jesus into this world that all who believe in him would have eternal life. God loves us so much that through faith in Jesus Christ, he forgives our mistakes, he forgives our sins and and the ugliness in our hearts and our guilt and our shame. God loves us so much that even though we don't deserve it, He adopts us as his sons and daughters and loves us like a perfect father should. God loves us so much that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his spirit enters into us and transforms us and goes with us everywhere we go and provides comfort to us in our pain and our sorrow and our loss and our loneliness. God loves us so much that no matter how far away from him we run, no matter how hard we try to push him away, he stands ready to forgive us and to embrace us when we ask him to in Christ's name. God loves us so much that while we were still sinners and enemies of God, Jesus Christ took this very road trip to Jerusalem that we're looking at this this season. And there he was arrested and beaten and mocked, and spat upon, and whipped, and nailed to a Roman cross where he died one of the most painful ways you can possibly die to pay the penalty for each of our sins to make all those other blessings possible. God loves us so much that the body of his son was broken for us His blood was poured out for us to create an entirely new way for us to be in relationship with him. God has been rich toward us in every imaginable way. The more we think about this truth, the more we let it wash over us, the more overwhelming it becomes. And so we must ask ourselves, are we rich towards him? Or are we like this blessed fool 
in Jesus' parable, amassing more and more stuff for ourselves while sharing precious little with the kingdom of God. Are we individually or as Lake Ridge Baptist Church, are we holding on to anything? Are we storing up anything? Are we amassing anything that we should instead be sharing, giving away, or using to serve the Lord and grow his kingdom? God has been very rich to us in every imaginable way. Are we rich toward him or are we fools? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us, all that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you, first and foremost, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, who gave his life that we could be reconciled to you, who gave his life that we may live forever, who gave his life that our sins may be forgiven, who gave our life, his life, that we may come into your presence through prayer today, and we'll spend an eternity in your presence. We thank you also for the ways you have richly blessed us materially, Lord, and we pray that we would each examine our hearts and our minds and our motivations towards money, towards these financial gifts you've given us. That we would each be rich toward you, that we would not be fools. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.